This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'm going to uh, take 30 minutes of your time and uh, take you on a journey uh, that I hope will weave together a number of the themes that you've heard over the last two days and certainly uh, with some emphasis on genetics that uh, Joyce and others have talked so eloquently about. You have my disclosures in your, uh, in your notes already. So let me tell you about a patient that I saw a couple of years ago. Uh, this was uh, a woman who was otherwise perfectly healthy, and she was referred by her primary care doctor because she had had a very clear-cut witness generalized tonic-clonic seizure. And when I spoke to her, in retrospect, she recalled some episodes of sort of feeling odd uh, in, in her stomach and then being a bit spacey, but that had never been connected with anything. Um, the family history, really important part of what we all do, was notable for a cousin who had febrile seizures and a niece who had the diagnosis of epilepsy. Um, the exam was completely normal. And we went on and did, did the type of routine blood studies that were all normal. We did a high resolution MRI scan, also normal. We did an EEG. And uh, for the electroencephalographers in the group, um, the, the, uh, the abnormality is pretty evident. But actually, if you just look in this area, this was a clear-cut um, interictal spike, which signified a region of hyperexcitability in the brain. And so with this history, along with these lab studies, it was quite evident that this individual had epilepsy. And... Um, by the way, there's a couple of uh, 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 figures, uh, paintings, uh, and other artwork that I've included in my slide deck that are actually all taken from people uh, living with epilepsy who are artists. And when I think about a patient and their reasons for coming to see us, I always think about what I call the three universal questions that we pose to ourselves and that we want answers to from the healer that we seek help from. And those three questions are, why did this happen to me? Can you help me? And so important, what does my future hold? So if you all think about the various times that you've decided that you wanted to go see a healthcare provider, it's at least two of these questions were in your mind. Otherwise you could have figured it out on yourself. And the thing that is remarkable to me is that in 2022, for the patient that I just described, I can't answer any of these questions fully. Why did this happen to me? Well, there's some sense that there was probably a genetic component to the epilepsy that this young woman developed, but I actually don't know for sure. Uh, and I certainly, if I were to do genetic testing for this type of syndrome, very unlikely that I'd be able to find a clear genetic cause. And of course, there are other potential reasons uh, that, that could explain her condition. But I can't tell you why this happened to her. Can you help me? Well, of course, we all do our work in order to help the patients that come to seek our care. But the truth is, again, um, it's likely that this patient needs to be on an anti-seizure drug. But I have virtually no idea which of the dozen or so drugs that I can choose from will work for this given patient. And I also can't predict 
whether or not she'll have any side effects from the drug that I choose. So I can try to help, but I certainly don't know what specifically will work. And then finally, what does my future hold? Again, for those of you who take care of people with seizure disorders and epilepsy, you know that other than a few types of fairly benign syndromes, for most people living with epilepsy, we have no idea what the future is going to be because we don't have a biomarker. We don't have any measurement that allows us to take, keep track of the, of the current state of the disease and follow its course. So this is the, this is the situation that we face in terms of treating so many patients with epilepsy today. Now, um, let me also just say, this is the most depressing part of my talk, okay? Ev everything else now is hopefully gonna go upwards. And what I'd like to sort of focus on is um, recognizing that despite the many aspects of epilepsy with imp which impact the patient, um, the unpredictability of seizures, the risk of injury, the comorbidities, the driving restrictions and so forth, um, uh, we are in fact making progress. Now that, that being said, if we look back 500 years and consider the way that um, uh, healers at the time treated various conditions such as neurologic conditions, this is a skull of someone who had trephination, drilling a hole into the head in order to let out the bad humors. And when we look back 500 years to that time, we kind of wonder what were they possibly thinking? Um, how could they not understand that there were other approaches to treatment? Well, I have to say, the folks looking back to our time 500 years from now are also going to be rather crit critical, I think. Um, for example, our approach to treating patients with epilepsy primarily involves taking a medicine that we hope will work and putting it into the mouth, into the GI system, letting it go throughout the body, getting to its target in the brain. That's not a very focused therapy. For surgery, we're still oftentimes taking the, the front four or five centimeters of the temporal lobe in order to treat a seizure focus in selected patients. And then finally, I've already referred to the comorbidities. Um, it's not just the seizures that need a focus. And I think too often we deny the existence or the reality of the other aspects of what a patient is, is uh, experiencing. So again, that, that, that sort of encapsulates um, the, the low point of the talk. Um, and now I'm gonna introduce you to the, a concept of the way we believe that precision medicine and epilepsy will arise. And um, if there's one thing that I want you to remember from my 30 minutes with you, it's this, that the approach to the care of patients with epilepsy and in, in all forms of medicine going forward is going to take the form of multiple, of, of an understanding of multiple levels of complex systems, many of which we're now beginning to understand. And the way to think about this is what we call the knowledge network. And the knowledge network recognizes that within the whole human being, we also need to think about the different layers of the different components that exist within that person. And as you can see, that's everything from the genome to the products that are made by the genes, the mRNA and the proteins or the transcriptome, the microbiome, the exposome, the clinical testing that we do to measure things, 
and then also collecting real-time patient data. And this is very analogous to what we all know in Google Earth. And if you think about the way Google Earth presents the state or the condition or the changing aspects of our globe, you can see that we can sort of dive into different levels to get a, uh, a sense of what's going on when it comes to weather or traffic or actually see what things look like at the street. And when we put them all together, we get a whole picture of the earth. And this, the idea here is that by, uh, by continuing to make progress in what we call the knowledge network, we'll be able to take gi giant data sets and use artificial intelligence and deep machine learning to actually then be able to understand the specific precise needs of each patient. So I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna delve into a number of these layers because at least a couple of them are fairly, I think are gonna be fairly new to you. And I, I hope there's something in addition to the main teaching point, which is for you to understand this, this idea of the knowledge network as the conceptual basis of precision medicine. Um, there's, there's some really interesting stuff going on in these different levels. So I'll talk about uh, a, a number of them. So let's start and we'll begin with what to me has got to be one of the most amazing advances in biomedical research and medicine. And that is our discovery uh, and the uh, remarkable research that's going on with regard to the microbiome. So as, I, as I'm sure you know now, you know, the microbiome is essentially an organ that exists in our body, but it doesn't actually belong to us genetically. There are roughly two to three trillion organisms living in our GI system, also happens to be on our skin and in our, in our pulmonary system. I'm just gonna focus on the GI system for now, but roughly the same number of, of organisms exist in our gut as we have in our body, our own cell types. And the microbiome turns out to be phenomenally important in regulating so many aspects of physiology. So focusing in on the brain, and its relationship to epilepsy, of course, we know that, for example, the, uh, uh, the microbiome allows circulating molecules that actually trigger the creation of growth factors in the brain and activation of immune cells in the brain. And this is just one of many, many examples of the interaction between our gut and our brain because of the microbiome. And specifically, we're now, just over the last few years, beginning to recognize that the microbiome may have a role in epilepsy. And here is just one of many examples that are now emerging. If you just think about this with me for a moment, when we take an antibiotic, we alter the microbiome. Um, the, the microbiome has a lot to do with our immune system and the inflammatory response. That can actually affect the status or the activity of the brain itself. It can also lead to the upregulation or downregulation of stress hormones, again, affecting the set point of the excitability of the brain. And similarly, when we think about our patients who are treating for epilepsy, up until now, I don't think we've ever thought about how the state of the microbiome affects the very treatments that we're giving them. As you can see, giving anti-epileptic drugs, diet, probiotics that the patient may be on affect the microbiome. And similar to what you see in the top part of the figure, the metabolites produced by the microbiome can affect the set point of the brain. 
And so, I, I mean, to me, this is like mind exploding um, when I think about how we have not paid virtually any attention to the microbiome in the way we go about the treatment of patients with epilepsy. Okay, that's the microbiome. Let's take a look at what's called the exposome. So the exposome is, the, the, the concept is, it's the, it's the, the types of and, and, and amounts of exposures to an individual in a lifetime and how they affect the person's health. And this figure gives you an idea of the many, many different aspects that our bodies get exposed to. Everything from radiation to microorganisms to the diet that we have, cigarette smoking, and on and on and on. And the question is, as we learn more about the way our bodies are exposed to the outside environment, and of course, we want to weave in now the way the outside environment is being changed by the effects on the climate, by human civilization. I mean, are there ways to think about the exposome as affecting, again, brain excitability and the likelihood for seizures? Well, here's just one example um, uh, of, again, many that are beginning to come out in the literature. I had a patient once who told me about his auras, you know, that, uh, that sort of initial sense that a seizure seems to be coming on. And I, I just loved the way he described it. He said, you know, Dr. Lowenstein, when I, when I know that a seizure is coming, I feel as though there's quote seizures in the weather. And in fact, uh, some of my colleagues down in Australia have done some studies where they carefully tracked the electrical excitability using uh, a very uh, special form of monitoring of brain function in patients with epilepsy. And they, and they found a clear correlation between outside ambient temperature and the likelihood of having seizures. And this is just an example of 15 different pa uh, patients showing the seizure frequency and the temperatures in, in, in degrees Celsius. As you can see, not, uh, uh, not all patients had the same pattern. Some of them had increased seizures with higher temperature. Some had increased seizures with lower temperature. But this just makes the point that until now, we've really not tracked the way the outside environment may affect the likelihood of having seizures. All right, let's go to clinical tests. Now, this is probably the most familiar to us. We've been relying on these for many, many decades. But as we know, as imaging becomes much, much more sophisticated, we're now able to get a, uh, a far more detailed idea of what the network properties are of the brain. And since epilepsy is in fact a network disorder, um, we're uh, able to now use um, uh, state-of-the-art uh, MR imaging, metabolo uh, metabolomic imaging, and uh, other forms to really inform us what the likelihood is of where a seizure focus may be. And of course, this is the beginning of what we hope will be uh, what I rely referred to previously, which is um, the time when eventually we have epilepsy biomarkers. So the ability to measure something, in this case, imaging, that could give us a sense of the activity and the uh, of the disease and its uh, and its time course. Well, uh, Lucy already referred to my own interest in uh, uh, genetics and genomics uh, in terms of thinking about epilepsy, and I've had the great privilege now for uh, a couple of decades to work with colleagues all around the world to try and uh, understand more about the genetic basis of epilepsy. We know that roughly 
60 to 70% of all types of epilepsy are affected uh, by uh, uh, the individual's genome. Um, but uh, progress has been most notable in those rare families in which it's clear that the epilepsy is due to a single gene. Um, however, and many of, many of, uh, most of you in the audience are aware of this amazing story, which I think uh, in, the, in the world of epilepsy research that I've been involved in, I think it's uh, arguably the most important progress of the last decade has been the focus on trying to understand the genetics of epileptic encephalopathies, which as you know, are the more severe forms of epilepsy that are uh, virtually always associated with uh, developmental uh, uh, delay and, and, and other, uh, other abnormalities, other uh, challenges. And um, because of work that uh, uh, groups that, again, I've been fortunate to work with um, over this past decade, we've made tremendous progress. And here, um, this is actually still now a number of years old, but it's just a very nice figure that shows you the, the various genes that have been associated with different epilepsy syndromes. Again, things that you've been talking about uh, and referred to over the last couple of days. Um, but this is remarkable because 15 years ago, we actually were not able to identify what the genes were that were causing these epileptic encephalopathies. And the research went on to show that many of these patients, the vast majority of these patients, actually have de novo mutations in identifiable genes. And um, we are now at the point where roughly almost half of all the patients with epileptic encephalopathies can now be explained genetically, which to me is just a remarkable advance. And this is, from, this is what allows me to think that we're finally at the point where uh, precision medicine and epilepsy is possible because uh, again, many of you listening in today are aware of this. You're using these tools in order to make a precise uh, diagnosis in, uh, in these patients. Um, and this is a, an updated list from Ann Pidori, my colleague in uh, Children's Hospital in Boston, of the types of treatments that we can now rely on if we know what the gene mutation is causing a patient's epilepsy. Again, 10 years ago, we couldn't make a list like this for virtually any of these. There were only one or two. But now, um, when we get this genetic diagnosis, it's not like what I described with the young woman who came into my clinic. This is giving us some sense of the direction that we should go with which drugs to use for a given patient. And finally, let me talk about real-time patient-derived data. Um, this has really been a game changer and, it, and it's because of the technologies that are emerging. I'm gonna show you just two sort of fun videos about techniques that, that are emerging in other areas. This is called PillCam. Um, and this is a little device that you take and uh, it goes down through your intestine. And um, there you can see, it's like a little spaceship and it's looking, looking in the intestine, look, there's a polyp. Um, uh, I don't know about you, but this seems like a heck of a lot better way than uh, a colonoscopy. Um, but this is just one example of the way we're able to collect real-time data in parts of the body. Um, an another example is uh, actually a way of, of better tracking how patients are taking their medicines. So this is a little tiny chip that can be placed uh, on uh, a pill. Uh, it's, it's tiny, grain of sand. 
and you take it goes inside of your body. Uh, the stomach acid lining actually breaks down. It makes a chemical change. So it starts emitting a signal. And so that uh, you can wear a patch over your stomach. Uh, the patch picks it up. It sends it off to your uh, phone, which then can be shared with members of your family or your, your doctor and so forth, and will give us a much better opportun opportunity for ensuring uh, compliance with patients taking their medications. Um, but I really showed that as a, a prelude to what's happening in the world of epilepsy. And that's the now the introduction of real-time monitoring of brain behavior in patients uh, actively in, uh, with epilepsy. And this is the NeuroPACE system or the responsive neurostimulator system in which uh, not only do the electrodes that are placed inside the brain for uh, permanently, um, are they able to uh, pick up electrical activity there's actually a closed loop system that when it begins to pick up the activity, it can actually send a stimulus back to abort the seizure as it's occurring. But I just wanted to focus in on the fact that for the first time, we're able to collect very, very detailed long-term data on patients with their epilepsy such that they, it's not just keeping track by their report of their clinical symptoms, what they're aware of, but also directly seeing the activation on the brain itself. And our colleagues here at UCSF and elsewhere have collected a gazillion amounts of data on, uh, on, uh, on a large number of patients now. And if you look at this pattern of the changes in the rhythm of, uh, of, of, of activity in the patient's brain over time, uh, divided between men and women, you can see that there's clearly patterns that emerge that we wouldn't otherwise be able to recognize if we couldn't have this continuous real-time uh, uh, monitoring. And uh, what, uh, again, our colleagues in the epilepsy group here at UCSF and others in Europe have been able to do is to define what the likely electrical pattern is that seems to be associated with a, uh, the likely onset of seizure activity. And what we're showing here is divided between detection over one minute, over a day, over a week, over a month, and then over a number of months, the little red dots that you see are seizures. And what this is showing is that when there's an uptick in activity picked up by the, uh, by the electrodes, there's a higher likelihood of, of actually experiencing a seizure. And what this then does amazingly is allowing the patient to have information about seizure likelihood. And again, for all of us who take care of patients with epilepsy, you know this would be an incredible sea change uh, in the way that our patients are able to monitor themselves, to be able to take a rescue medicine, for example, before the seizure occurs in the first place. And again, this will be a game changer. So um, what I hope I've shown you is that this knowledge network which will allow us to understand the multiple levels in, in the whole patient. And by the way, I don't know how many other levels there are, but there certainly uh, are present. Um, this is what's going to allow us to get to the point where by analyzing the different levels and putting them all together in the whole patient, we'll be able to actually have a much more precise approach to the diagnosis and treatment of, pa of patients with epilepsy. And so coming back to those three questions, that I started off with at the beginning of the talk. Um, why did this happen to me? Well, for the patient that I described, still in this, at this moment, 
in March of 2022? I can't answer that, but I'm, I'm telling you sometime in the next five to 10 years, I will be able to tell what the likely genes are because it's probably not one um, that are the basis of this woman's epilepsy. Will I be able to help her? Um, yes, even more, because by knowing what those genes are, I'll be able to design the kind of treatment uh, that's necessary. I'll also be aware of the status of her microbiome, of her transcriptome, of her exposome, and uh, imaging studies and so forth. And I'll use all that information to come up with a much more precise approach. And what does my future hold? I have no doubt that the work that's going on in the genetics of epilepsy and these other layers are going to be uh, begin to give us the kind of biomarkers which will allow us to track a patient's disease and actually eventually tell them your epilepsy is going to go away. And with that, um, one of my favorite pictures that I took on a mountaineering trip a number of years ago, uh, for those of you who like the outdoors, one of my favorite moments uh, being in the wilderness is that when you just begin to see that hint of the sun coming up over the east on the horizon, and you're beginning to see the change in the hues of the nighttime sky, and that's the early dawn, and that's where I think we are in the world of precision medicine with epilepsy. And with that, mm. I'll, I'll thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful talk, Dan. You blew us away once again. <laughs> And let's see, I think you have a few questions here. Do you routinely recommend probiotics in patients with epilepsy? Uh, no, because, um, and honestly, because I'm not, I don't have enough expertise in that. Um, but I strongly recommend um, working with a nutritionist um, to figure out you know, what the, what the best diet is for individuals. I mean, in general, um, we know that a low carb diet works, uh, helps many patients with epilepsy in terms of uh, seizure frequency. We, we can't predict which patients will um, do better, but as a general rule, I recommend that. But I also think that we should be working in concert with uh, nutritionists. Good plug. Uh, Dr. Deborah Davis asks, are there any new effective therapeutics or treatments or even supplements for Lennox Gastot. She has a 50 year old patient on home care with max doses on all appropriate drugs, including epidelix. Yeah. Yeah. Seizures. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, what, however, um, we're, we're now, we're now at the point where patients with Lennox Gastot, if they, have negative imaging studies, you know, and there's no clear evidence of say like an early birth event that caused a, a brain uh, malformation. Um, in those patients, the, they likely had an epileptic, they had an epileptic encephalopathy that uh, has become Lennox-Gastaut. And so we should be treating, we should be considering those adult patients the same way we consider a new onset ep, uh, epilepsy in an infant or neonate. And so genetic testing is appropriate for those patients. And that actually may reveal uh, an abnormality that uh, you could use the table that I included from Ann Padori to help direct your treatment. Maybe our, uh, a consult from our last speaker, Dr. So, would be in order for her patient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, another question, does NERPACE technology replace VNS? 
Ah, that's a really good question. So I'm going to admit my bias right here. <laughs> I've never been very impressed by VNS. Um, uh, there are folks who think that it works really well. Um, in in it's it's VNS is worth uh, trying because it's uh, uh, it's not very invasive, although it does have the side effects of you know causing irritation of the throat when the when the when the stimulator turns on. Um, Occasional patients, it works, but for many, it doesn't. Um, I think that RNS, the responsive uh, uh, neurostimulator system by Neuropace, is far more effective, um, but it can't be used in the same uh, in the same number of patients. But um, I really do think that all practitioners who are taking care of patients with epilepsy should become aware of the RNS system and refer them to an epilepsy center uh, because it can be incredibly helpful. And the last. The final question of the day, uh, asking a, your opinion on the pros and cons of getting an epilepsy panel versus exome for epilepsy. Uh, yeah, great question. Depends on what the syndrome is that you're considering. So, you know, there, are, as as a number of folks here know, when you have a patient where everything's suggesting that it's a, for example, a likely Dravet syndrome, getting a panel is is likely to be the most effective uh, approach. So in general, I like getting uh, a, a panel when the syndrome seems, uh, uh, when, a, when an identifiable syndrome seems likely, uh, but if not, then going to an exome is, 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 is certainly going to be able to yield even more information. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.